Our lives are made up of moments that are not spectacular. You know, carpool runs and cooking dinner and mowing the lawn and, and, and replying to emails and all of that stuff. And yet, how can we not only become aware of God's presence with us in those moments, but also see those moments as themselves being uh, tucked in with glory, you know, crammed with glory. Today I'm joined by Dr. Glenn Packiam. Glenn is the lead pastor of New Life Downtown in Colorado Springs, Colorado. He is, along with being a pastor, an author and theologian. He's got his doctorate in theology and ministry from Durham University in the UK. And he's actually an ordained priest with the Anglican Church of North America. Some of the books he's written include Discover the Mystery of Faith, Lucky, How the Kingdom Comes to Unlikely People. And he's got a brand new book that I'm excited to talk with him about. Glenn was nice enough to give me an advanced copy a few months ago, and I've just thoroughly enjoyed his new book, Blessed, Broken, Given, How Your Story Becomes Sacred in the Hands of Jesus. So I hope you enjoy today's conversation with Dr. Glenn Packiam. Glenn, I've uh, I've really resonated with your work over the years because I I do think we share a bit of shared spiritual history and even shared ministry interests as as charismatic guys, right? Um, and I think I still feel fine saying that. I know some people shy away from that term, but it seems like you don't shy away from that either. <laughs> no, no, I'm. I'm- proud of all the different root systems that have contributed to who I am, you know. Yeah, so we have that, maybe that shared um, shared interest, shared background, and then in more particular, you, you had quite a bit of your ministry years were spent specifically in, you know, a worship arts ministry as well, which has been part of my background too. But there is a part of your story and your background which is wildly different than mine, and you shared a bit in your book, which is awesome. Again, I, I wish I, I wish somebody would have, you know, wish you would have written this somehow 15 years ago and someone would have handed it to me. But you're, you're an immigrant and you have this unique uh, immigrant story that I find so fascinating. Uh, can you share a bit of your story and maybe highlight some of the unique, maybe formational experiences that led you to doing what you're doing today? Sure. So I, I grew up in Malaysia, and sometimes people hear that and they think, oh, were you a missionary kid? No, like that's where I'm from. Um, my mom was born in Singapore. My dad was born in Malaysia. Uh, ethnically, um, my dad is Tamil, which is one of the ethnicities in India. Uh, my mom is Sinhalese, Sri Lanka. So that's where the ancestry kind of goes back. I was born in Malaysia. My dad was a Hindu. I mean, he was raised in a Hindu family. My mom was raised in an Anglican family. So they part of you know part of my family story really is them meeting at the University of Singapore and my mom basically saying, "Look, I'm not going to marry a Hindu," and my dad converting. And there was enough stirring in his heart already, but it was a major deal, and it it meant it, it really being cut off from his side of the family for many years. So I by the time my sister and I came along, we we grew up in this Christian home. We were going to this Anglican church. I would say faith was sincere, but it wasn't. It didn't take over our whole lives, but along the way, it really began to, the Lord really began to grip my parents, and uh, they they were mentored by a, they started going to this Bible study led by a Baptist pastor, 
and then they got introduced to like a charismatic, you know, renewal movement. So when I part of how that's formational for me is I have a great appreciation for the whole body of Christ, you know, for these many streams, because I remember this Anglican liturgical, you know, childhood. And then I remember this love for the Bible and watching my parents talk about this. And then and then, you know, encountering different experiences of the spirit. So when I was 10, our family moved from Malaysia to America. Uh, my parents went to a Bible college, small Bible college in Portland, Oregon. And so that was a big part of my journey. So, you know, I mean, uh, I um, I grew up speaking English, but over the years, I like to say, I learned to speak American, you know, and I got the accent, all of that, tried to fit in. And, and but we lived there for three years and then moved back to Malaysia um, for another four years. And I kind of knew just the way that I was doing my education and all that, that I was going to come back to the States to go to college and that's what I did in uh, January of 96. I'll, I'll pause there in the story. Yeah, I, I think, I, you know, those details, those specific details, I don't think are in your book about the various Christian streams that played an influence in your parents' spiritual formation. And now it makes a lot of sense. I, I find you to be one of the, one of the, I hate to say rare guys out there, but it is fairly rare um, to encounter someone that is not uh, incredibly like tribalistic in their expression of uh, of Christianity. And you have this—you've you've seen ever since I start, first started reading your work, or even even listening to the music that that you were you were making years back. Uh, I've always came across as someone that was that was open to the the larger work that God had done in the church outside of just one particular denomination or the other. And so hearing that your parents had that sort of experience makes makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Well, and you know, Paul, when you go and find Christians in other countries, uh, usually they're the minority. And so That's true there, there tends to be quite a bit more collaboration and, and efforts toward unity. I think of even, you know, we, we've got friends uh, in the UK and they talk about that. The crossing of streams, so to speak, is much easier when you're in the minority and you realize, hey, we got to work together here. I think in America, in some ways, you know, maybe we're heading towards this post-Christian kind of era, but... But in in many ways, we have the luxury of being divided. That's a funny way to say it. But you know, it it, it uh, the the tribal thing is not going to help us in the long run. No, no, no. Okay, so this uh, you end up coming over here to the states, and and let's just fast forward here to today. You are a pastor, a theologian, an author. You know what what sorts of formative experiences as after you moved over here to the states played a, a significant part in you becoming those uh, you know they're interrelated but they they do have these probably unique each one of those parts of your life probably have a, a unique uh season or time in your life in which uh you were shaped in this way to, to actually pursue these things well, my experience is I, I did my undergrad at Oral Roberts University, which, you know, that raises comments from people sometimes. But it's where my wife went, actually. Oh, is that right? There yeah, you go. Yeah. So, you know, some of my closest friends to this day were friends that I made in those years. And those those were deeply formative experiences, people who knew how to, you know, seek the Lord and with the fervent, you know, uh, fervency of spirit. But but also loved engaging their minds and, and, and become, you know, the, the conversations about emotional and spiritual health, all of that stuff, you know, I was introduced to that in my college years. I had great theology faculty who were actually pretty uh, ecumenical. Um, I was a theological historical studies major, so that kind of had the seeds of it. 
but then for many years, you know, I was doing the worship leader thing and, and, and based here at the church and, and we would travel and do some of that. And, um, and there was good and bad with that, Paul, you know, I mean, there, there's a lot of stuff that was uh, pure and genuine. I'm thinking late nineties, early two thousands, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of the passion stuff was taking off Hillsong United was taken up and there was something very beautiful about it. But then the more sort of commercialized it became, there were just some complications to it that 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 troubled me, and that uh, that became part of my own uh, wrestling, my own uneasiness, and I wanted to think more theologically about worship itself. And the other experience that, of course, was massively uh, formational was what we went through as a church. So I've been at New Life Church for 19 years, and uh, six years into my time at the church, this would have been 2006, you know, the founding pastor had a, a pretty public um, moral failure scandal, and and uh, you know that that really impacted uh, all of us. And and one because it was shocking, but two because you kind of reevaluate everything. You start to say, now wait a minute, what kind of uh, what kind of community? The Hauerwas question: What kind of community makes this kind of action possible? You mm. know. And then you start to think, well, these were the good things about our church culture, but these were the, the not so great things in the way we talked about influence and sort of cultural engagement. And I write about that a little bit toward the end of the book, about the shift that's happened even at New Life under um, Pastor Brady, our new senior pastor, moving from this kind of uh, national, you know, out there focus to, to local and, and presence with people in pain and so all of those things have been part of the story. It, it was it was th- those um, those years, 06, 07, that really became catalytic for me to say, I want to go back and study theology again. I want to think carefully about what it means to be a pastor, to be the church, and you know all of this stuff. So that led to some of the journeys, not only in going back to seminary, but also in uh, my journey toward uh, Anglican priesthood, and you know th- all of that stuff is related because I was looking for a sense of rootedness and a way to center on Jesus. I want to come back to maybe some of the things that when you went through that difficult season, perhaps you were able to step back and identify some of the perhaps negative theological ideas or the formation practices that you guys were doing, which kind of perhaps contributed to a culture where where stuff like that is um, possible, and it's um, actually, sadly, it's pretty duplicatable elsewhere, too. But I, I... you know, so that was maybe 2007, 2008 was that time for yeah. you? It was 2006 was when the scandal happened. 2007 yeah. was when we, there was a shooting on our campus, you know, a, a hundred uh-huh. days into Pastor Brady uh, taking over. And and then, but all of it kind of meshed together as this crucible of of formation for, for us to say, okay, what's going on in my own heart? So there was like a, an awakening in my own kind of devotional life with the Lord. There was an awakening in my vocational life of like, what does it mean to be yes. a pastor? And then there was an awakening in, in theology, like I, I've had too small of a picture of what it means. And so all of the stuff that, you know, you, you talk about with kingdom and all of that, you know, that, that kind of paradigm is, is, uh, was began to be formed in me in that 08, 09, 2010, that, those, those years. It's interesting. I think back on my own journey, which your book made me do quite a bit of. It's great. Again, um, this isn't this isn't a paid I'm a paid advertisement here. I, I, I genuinely genuinely enjoyed it. Um, but it made me think about my own journey. And for me, back it was probably around 2011, and not because of any sort of macro level crisis. 
on a church level or, or, or moral failure that we had to walk through with with somebody else. In fact, uh, you know, I experienced that stuff actually at a much much younger age in ministry. Um, but I started to undergo this massive theological and spiritual transformation, and, and actually, you know, much of it started from a film. Um, I, I was in the thick of charismatic culture, where, where everything about my practice and uh, about my purpose was centered around seeking transcendent experiences, right? I'm sure you can relate to some degree. Uh, supernatural miracles, etc. And, you know, I was heavily involved in the 24-7 worship and prayer movement, traveled all over the country helping people build prayer furnaces, which again, unless you're in charismatic culture, you probably have no idea what I'm talking about, but you're shaking your head. You get it. You know. You guys had a prayer chapel at New Life, didn't you? Still do, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't. it's not quite running right. in a 24-7 sort of way, but yeah. 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 So, you know, being completely submerged in that in that culture, I, subtly what I had begun to believe was that the here and now, the mundane, normal life with my wife and kids was drastically inferior to that world. Then I was watching this movie, uh, a Terrence Malick film called Tree of Life, and uh, out of nowhere, you know, this is around 2011, I just, I'm watching this and I'm bawling my eyes out. As I watch this, I, I feel totally broken because this film had had somehow, <clears throat> excuse me, it had somehow captured that these mundane daily family interactions were infused deeply with the sacred, the the transcendent and the holy. And, and I was just weeping because I feel like I'd been missing that. Uh, my marriage, I was experiencing a lot of tension and discord in our marriage and I just couldn't when I was home and not traveling or doing a conference or a meeting. I felt depressed and dissatisfied because I had developed this theology that had no room for the here and now, for the mundane. So simultaneously, along with that, I started having these questions about this weird practice we'd always grown up doing, and it was like once a month, and uh, I never quite understood why we did it other than it just seemed like well, I guess we're not a church if we don't do communion at least once a month. And in any of my traditions, which was actually, I, my church was very much growing up. My childhood church was very much Word of Faith or Roberts. In fact, I had to read uh, my parents. I, I joke about this frequently, and they're, they're fine laughing about it now too. But part of my like childhood chores in the summertime was I had to read Kenneth Copeland daily devotionals. <laughs> so, so you get it. I, I think you, I think you understand. So, you know, I didn't understand. I didn't have a grid for anything historic uh, in the church, much less this practice of communion. And I started studying it, reading the scriptures, simultaneously wrestling with, I mean, how do I, how do I see God in the here and now? And why am I always trying to do these big, explosive, miraculous things? But most of my life doesn't actually live there. And so I start studying, uh, you know, Eucharist and the communion scriptures, and then in church history, and then, and then even reading some Eastern Orthodox voices, which I found incredibly helpful. And everything started to shift in me, but I couldn't help but think, as I was reading your book about about that movie, that Terrence Malick film, Tree of Life, and my own journey of trying to starting to see the ordinary as blessed. Yes. 
Um, which really seems like your book might be specifically geared to people who might have been where I was at in 2011, 2012, and are in this sort of uh, experiencing the cognitive dissonance of going, I don't know how to make sense of how the here and now is valuable. I intuitively feel like it has to be. Um, but how, right? Is is that fair? Is that really part of maybe one of your primary missiological focuses in this book is to to help people in that? And and how much of this comes from your own journey of, of trying to have a holistic Christian spirituality? Well, I, I I think there's so much in what you said, Paul, that I I uh, relate to and resonate with. I mean, I I do think you know there's many versions of this, but a lot of a lot of us kind of have this idea that if we're not in church or, or doing something kind of, um, you know, epic. So it could show up in the desire for sort of an epic impact, you know, like make your life is just making this massive difference or, uh, the ecstatic where you're, you're looking for these, these emotional or experiential highs. And if you don't have that, then, you know, you know, what is life? And, um, and, and maybe some of that is just, uh, you know, Eugene Peterson called it uh, perpetuating adolescence, you know, where we're, we're chasing kind of the next adrenaline rush, really, you know. And, uh, and I think there is a lot of what we confuse, where we confuse spirituality with adrenaline or with, uh, you know, a flood of, of, of chemicals. And, and so what I'm trying to say in the book is, is that, that actually the bread that Jesus takes and blesses and breaks, he's not... He's not turning bread into something magical. What's really going on is he's telling us some, a statement about what all creation was made to be. You know, um, all creation was made to be blessed, was made to be filled with the glory of God. And so Genesis one, that God repeatedly calls things good, and then at the end of it all, He blesses it. You know, He blesses what He made. And so there's a sense that that in blessing bread, Jesus is reminding bread of of what it was made to be. And 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 I think there's something powerful about capturing that ourselves um, in the ordinary stuff. You know, our lives are made up of moments that are not spectacular. You know, carpool runs and cooking dinner and mowing the lawn and, and, and replying to emails and all of that stuff. And yet, how can we not only become aware of God's presence with us in those moments, but also see those moments as themselves being uh, tucked in with glory, you know, crammed with glory? So what did you see in your own journey of um, being in charismatic culture, being in a very large, influential church, and you have, you're experiencing both of these sorts of tensions probably in your own heart and in the ministry that you're doing in your church where you, you might be assigning the significance of your life to doing yeah. significant things in the world— <clears throat> Excuse me, to doing significant things in the world in some sort of macro sense, uh, a very Americanized notion of significance on one hand. And on the other hand, you're in charismatic culture, which there's there's so many wonderful things about it. And I, I don't want to speak disparagingly of, of it because uh, in its best forms, the, the, the charismatic Pentecostal stream r- reminds us a bit of the transcendence of God and it invites it into invading into the mundane, right? That's it. I, I think about, you know, in charismatic um, practice, the laying on of hands or anointing with oil, all of that stuff. Actually, there's quite a bit of overlap between a charismatic spirituality and a sacramental spirituality, because both of those worldviews say that the Holy Spirit can be present in and inhabit, work through common, ordinary stuff. It's just that for some reason, we tend to kind of take the charismatic thing as this escapist thing. So it's all yes. about the exit. Yes. 
space. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Instead of saying how how God comes to dwell within this moment and in this space, which is radically different, right? Yeah. I mean, you take that mindset, and what that's what I felt. I was experiencing um, building prayer rooms, doing conferences, having these really long, spontaneous musical worship sessions as a vehicle to leave to escape. And I didn't have any sort of rapture theology. I, I hadn't ha- had that even, um, you know, in, in during those years. But for many people that also carry that sort of theological framework, everything is about escape, about leaving, about it's really Gnostic, isn't it? It, it is extremely Gnostic. So the, the Gnostic idea that there's a division between the material world and the spiritual world, and, and you got to exit the bad material world and, and enter the good spiritual world. Uh, I, I do think, you know, even some of the way we talk about worship stuff shows a kind of Gnosticism when we say things like, was that the Holy Spirit or was that just my emotions? Well, wait a minute. Why can't it be both? Why can't the Holy Spirit work through our emotions? Why can't the Holy Spirit work through the, the chemicals in our brain? I mean, even I was saying it just a moment ago about being addicted to adrenaline. Now, there is a way of only associating the spirit with those uh, that adrenaline rush, and that's where the right. problem comes, is to say, of course, the Holy Spirit can work through and with our emotions and in highs and all this stuff. But we have to expand our way of thinking of the Spirit's work. And that, in a sense, is what this book, how this book begins. It's predicated on a wider view of the Holy Spirit's work, a wider view of glory, if you will. And so chapter one is all about sacramental sight, about seeing with a new kind of imagination of saying, wait a minute, there's more going on. It's Jacob waking up after his stairway to heaven dream and saying, surely the Lord was in this place and I didn't know it. Like there's more ways that God is at work than we are aware of. You know, even as you mentioned some of these charismatic practices, I had never seen it as such as a kid. I I guess I I saw it as these almost demonstrations of supernatural abilities, the laying on of hands, the anointing with oil, but it's actually right there within the practices themselves if we were to have a a, a different lens, a, a different way of seeing it. The laying on of hands is immensely physical, right? So physical. Yeah. And, and even something as weird still for most people as anointing oil or putting them on a prayer handkerchief. You know? I'm just going to say prayer cloths, bro. <laughs> prayer cloths. Yeah. Immensely like uh, the it's incarnational. It is. You know, it's it's the it's the the spirit endowing the physical world with um these sorts of windows into into the the ultimate reality of of the trinitarian god. That's right. So let's talk a little bit. You just threw out a term. It's a term I've talked about previously in my podcast as well, uh, sacramental theology, which I had no idea what that was 15 years ago. Yeah, a few episodes I, I had um, a few episodes ago, I had concluded a short series where I've been kind of exploring the meaning crisis that American culture at large has been experiencing. We we see suicide rates. Uh, up, we see among people ages 10 to 35 that suicide now is the second leading cause of death in that age group. Crazy, crazy. It's mind-boggling. And and I think I've proposed that, and it's not only me, but others, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with the work of, you know, Charles Taylor, James K.A. Smith, this uh, secular age thesis, that a large part of this meaning crisis has been brought about by the the dominant narrative of naturalism, which teaches people that the imminent physical world, which I had a really hard time finding value in, 
it teaches that that's all that there is, is the imminent physical world of matter. There is no transcendent, right? Uh, ultimate reality is nothing more than the physical universe, which just so happens to be random, chaotic, autonomous, and you're trapped in this machine, which by a uh, logical consequence leaves you with no free will, all these sorts of implications, which are incredibly depressing, right? I guess on the positive side, if we were to highlight something good that happened, and you do talk a little bit about this in your book, the, the sort of uh, the philosophical and theological history in the West, that we saw this movement from theism into deism. I guess one positive thing that we could highlight perhaps, right, is that because of the scientific revolution, there, uh, which did eventually give way to naturalism, it, it did give people this renewed ability to see mystery and wonder in the imminent world. And it actually, in a certain sense, though, I don't think someone like a, a Richard Dawkins would ever say this, in a certain sense, uh, the new atheists and naturalists are, are simply saying it's general revelation only, right? And in a way that there was, there was probably a good elevation of general revelation to help us figure out things that can contribute to vaccinations and medicines that set the world right and these incredible contributions. Um, but I think what I saw, if I were to evaluate, especially like the last 30, 40 years of evangelical history, there's, there's been this sort of counter reaction to naturalism that has been, instead of finding a way of still going, yes, general revelation has immense value, the imminent world has immense value, it's been, no, 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 transcendence, transcendence, yeah. uh, Christ against culture. And it feels like Christians have said, no, it's the transcendent, and we're still trying to tell you how to get to heaven when you die. And people were like, I I'm not even concerned right now with where I go when I die. Um, I find a lot of meaning in the imminent. Do you think this sacramental theology that you talk about is is somehow an antidote to all of this? And, and what would you say are some core theological af affirmations that make up this sacramental view? Well, let's take that question first. What are some core kind of components of the sacramental view? I would say one of them is that creation was made good and blessed, uh, blessed and made, you know, made made to be good and, and, and blessed. And so that's important because I, for many evangelicals, we start with the fall, but that's not how Genesis begins. Genesis begins with uh, wanting us to know that God did this on purpose. God took pleasure in it. God did this for a purpose. Everything was assigned a place and a purpose. And uh, um, so, so the maybe first affirmation in sacramental theology is that this material world was made good and blessed. Uh, but the second part of it is the, is the notion that, yes, yet somehow it is marred, bent, infected, whatever metaphor we want to use to talk about the, the work of sin. Paul uses the metaphor of chains, you know, creation is, is groaning kind of in its bondage. Um, and, and then to say, yet God has never abandoned it, you know. Um, I, I think, again, where sometimes maybe Protestants leave this is to say, well, because of the fall, it ruined everything. Therefore, there's nothing good anymore. The whole thing is just, you know, needs to be thrown away. It, it, instead of saying, no, 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 God has never abandoned it. And and again, the story of of the flood in Genesis, you know, uh, uh, nine, uh, eight, and nine, and ten, it, it, it's meant to say to us that if there was ever a time when God had the chance to scrap 
the physical world and be done with it. It was then. Yet he didn't. And the whole point of taking animals two by two and all of that, you know, as the story goes, is to say God goes to great lengths to to restore original creation versus scrap it and start over. So sacramental theology wants us to say that the physical still can be redeemed. Um, and then and then maybe maybe next you'd say, uh, in, in fact, this, the physical can be a signpost or a picture of um, God's saving work. You said, and you, you highlight in your book, and I'm appreciative that you did this, you, you brought up some of the ancient Near Eastern creation myths that were running parallel to the creation story in Genesis for the ancient uh, ancient Hebrew people. And uh, I, I love that you bring that up because what it shows is you, you showed, you demonstrate that this, this story of creation and the original blessed state of creation is very different than those those ancient worldviews where uh, you might have, for example, I believe it was like Marduk, right? Marduk was in a cosmic struggle, and so creation that we experience now is the result of violence and, and war. I think about how that parallels with the essentially the creation myth uh, of today, which is a, a godless, autonomous, random universe. It's purposelessness. There's there, there's no teleological point to it, right? And so... If the we, origin story wrong, then you get the purpose wrong. You know, there, if the origin is what you said, yeah, a materialistic account of the world, then all of a sudden there is no more purpose or... or so your question about transcendence, the value of transcendence is not that we escape, but the value of transcendence is that it imparts meaning and significance and purpose into our current world. So one of the things I say in the, in, in the early chapters is to be blessed is a word that already implies something from outside yourself, something from beyond yourself giving you a blessedness. And in, in the same way, when we get to the chapter on givenness, you know, the idea of purpose and meaning, that has to be received. A purpose has to be received, not made. And, and one of the great lies of our age, our, our new secular age, is that you are, that it's actually good news for you to be a self-authoring individual, you know? And we think, oh, this is great news. I can write my own story. Actually, that's not good news because how do you know if you're getting it right? And, and, and maybe, I don't want to trivialize yeah. genuine yeah. mental health issues and all that, but maybe part of the angst of our age and anxiety of our age is because we've put this weight on ourselves to write our own story and assign ourselves our own meaning and purpose, and we think, whoa, we're breaking under the weight of that. We're the only authoring agents left in the universe, right? If there, if there is no God, if there is no mind behind the matter, right. we're, we're left to ourselves to be the authoring agents. Right, and we're cracking under that weight. So you start with blessedness, and you, you brought this up, that in some Protestant traditions, uh, the narrative often begins with brokenness. Why don't you start there? Are, is this, uh, you know, is this some sort of, are you sneaking in some Catholic theology here or Eastern Orthodox theology? Why, why, not, why not start with the brokenness, right? I think we have to start where the Bible starts, you know, so, so <laughs> that's a good answer, you know. Yeah. We start where the Bible starts, and the Bible—look, it's not as if Genesis 1 was written pre-fall. Every textual evidence we have suggests that these stories are written down much later. So in the face of brokenness and in the face of suffering, they go back and say, well, let's tell the story about when God made this good, you know? Mm. Uh, and again, the origin has a great deal to say about the, the destination, and and— 
that's the beautiful thing about even Christian hope, just crossing over to the other part of the other things I'm passionate about talking about, you know, um, Christian hope is not God reverting us back to the beginning, but, but it's God completing the story as he had in mind when he, when he began it. Right. And, and basically saying to us as humans, you, you couldn't really destroy this thing. I, I found a way to get it back on track. Yeah. 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 I, I, I find it immensely helpful to think of creation as an ongoing process that we are still participating in, that God is still doing, and he's bringing it about to completion. Um, and it starts good, but it ends even better. Right. I mean, that is the Christian hope in the in the here and now. And I'm thankful. You know, I, you think about. I don't want to get too far off into eschatology here, but I, I think about the contributions of people like N.T. Wright, who have had a really profound effect on me, being able to see the imminent world as valuable because. He's been a an eschatological, a prophetic voice saying, hang on, guys, we need to recover this historic Christian eschatology of the, the resurrection of the dead instead of the escape to a platonic heaven. Yes, yes, a- absolutely right. And, and my, my dissertation work was all about that, you know, how we conceive of Christian hope and how we sing about it, how we experience it, all of that sort of stuff. But it, it kind of relates a bit to the blessed, broken, given stuff or to the sacramental worldview because— you have to step back in order to have sacram- sacramental sight. You have to step back and see the whole story. You got to see the blessedness in the beginning and this beautiful restoration, re- resurrection in the end. And then you're able to make sense of that brokenness in the middle, if you will. Mm. All right. So you start with blessedness. And uh, in this first movement, I, I, you talk about how this, these are not only just theological ideas, but essentially they're, they're movements to our life that as we participate in these three movements of being blessed, broken, and given, that that we are—I'm paraphrasing you, but we're, we're living more in tune with our the God's original intention for, for humanity. Uh, I, in that first section, in the first movement of your book, where you make this connection between Christ's body symbolically being represented in Scripture as both bread in the act of the Eucharist and communion— but also the church. And then you talk about how the, the church is a place to rehearse our blessedness. Can you can you share a little bit about what you mean by that? I think every time that, that we gather as the church, every time we come to worship, we are rehearsing, reenacting the, the drama of the gospel. You know, so uh, the songs proclaim who God is, remind us of what Christ has done, all of this stuff. And then we hear the scriptures being read and taught, and that, again, you know, is, is a gospel moment. And we come to the table. I mean, all of this stuff, basically, the act of Christian worship, and I use that word to, to describe everything that happens in the corporate service, is meant to reenact the gospel. And the gospel, that is the source of our blessedness. That's Ephesians, where Paul says we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. So... The church is the place where we remember that, we rehearse that, we we remind ourselves, oh, in the face of these difficulties that I'm experiencing, in the face of my own shortcomings, in the face of my own, you know, I, I go to church to remind each other that, hey, we have been gathered here, we've been called out of the world, we've been called out of darkness into light, uh, named as beloved children of God, blessed into the family. Um, that's a powerful countercultural thing. That is not that different than than uh, you know a Hebrew child 
in, in Babylonian exile, coming back home on, on a Sabbath meal and hearing his father pray this prayer, you know, blessed are you, Lord our God, king of the universe, you know, a way of saying we're still the people who belong to that great sovereign God. That's what Christians are doing. So it's a formational counter-narrative, right, yeah. that gives people a new navigational map for their life. And I think that's something that I didn't uh, really understand in my charismatic background, which was the priority was on what we would we would call encounter, mm -hmm. presence. Uh, the prevailing metaphor in my childhood church growing up was very much a temple and tabernacle, right? So uh, in worship, the worship, uh, musical act of worship was our primary sacrament. It was the means of grace. Nobody used that language, but as I reframe it now, right, it was about coming to encounter God, to have a mystical experience, but uh, we hadn't given much intentionality to narrative and to how, when we gather for worship, how it forms us to be people in the world. And actually, you had a book a few years ago, A Mystery of Faith. It was really helpful for me in my, my role to begin to consider not throwing that out, because church is a place where saints gather together, and we we can if if as your if your thesis is correct right and and the world is filled with these sacramental opportunities these icons to get a window into god's world and to experience his grace and if that's along with i think a rich pneumatology that says yeah. the spirit of god is everywhere so this isn't just through our own thinking it's actually through the person of the spirit yeah. uh, i don't want to throw out church as a place for deep meaningful experiential communion with god but I also want to be conscientious of the story that we're telling, the ideas about God that we're proclaiming, and the practices that we're doing, so that I can be shaped for the world out there. Correct? Correct. Absolutely. I, when we gather to worship, there's more going on than our expression to God or our encounter with God even. There is something formative, transformative that is occurring there. And so... That's why we want to think about this stuff. That's why we want to think about it deeply to say, in, in what way are we rehearsing and reminding each other of, of uh, the blessedness of the gospel? So if we start from the blessedness, the second movement that you prescribe is moving from blessed, as we see in the act of communion, to bread broken, to brokenness. Um can we just skip this step? You know, like, can we can we not talk about our brokenness? You know, you shared this personal story in the book, which uh, you know, I encourage again people to pick this up. Uh, you're in the thick of ministry yourself, right? And this seemed like it was probably recently because it, uh, you talked about you're in the middle of you know working or completing your dissertation, and you came back and you ex you were experiencing this internal brokenness, but as I could so easily relate to, as someone in ministry, it's hard to share that brokenness with others. Mm -hmm. Why can't we just, you know, kind of shove the brokenness back into the, the closet or to our junk drawer and not yeah. reveal it? Why, why do you see this as a necessary step in, in healthy spiritual formation? I mean, Paul, look, I, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to sort of <laughs> tuck it away. Yeah. Bunch, you know. But, but I, I had never been that uh, kind of low before, and I couldn't quite escape it, and it was showing up. You know, that kind of, um, when you're in the depths like that, it, it sometimes shows up as anger, sometimes shows up as irritability. I mean, it, it, it affects your overall. 
And, uh, and I realized what I was doing was I, you know, I tell the story in the book of my spiritual director basically saying to me, Jesus doesn't just love the strong Glenn, you know, and bless the, 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 the leader who's got it. You know, Jesus sits with and blesses and loves uh, weak Glenn, you know, and, and that I'm telling you, it, if we ignore that, we're missing out on a depth and beauty of the love of God. That God loves us not in our strengths, but in our in our mess, in our in our wretchedness, in while we were yet sinners, right? And 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 I, you know, I'm 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 careful in the book to outline at least three different dimensions of of what I mean by broken, because that word is a tricky word. So so brokenness can refer to our own human frailty, just our fragility and and like like what we've been talking about here. But it can also refer to our failure when we are culpable. Uh, we've done something. It's not just I'm overwhelmed or I'm anxious. You know, we've done something. Um, and then brokenness can refer to suffering and pain when when something has been done to us. Uh, uh, a death has happened. A tragedy has happened. You know, and, and but in all three of those kinds of brokenness, Christ is still there. And if we if we can see that, I think I think what emerges is a kind of integration. So, you know, when we say wholeness, sometimes that can give the impression that, you know, God sort of snaps his fingers and voila, and now we're put back together. And and I, I think when the brokenness is about sin and all that, that is kind of true. Yes, we do get kind of men, mended. But there's another kind of thing that I wish I would have said this a little more clearly in the book, but where we are integrated, and I talk about my shadow, and 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 you know that comes from psychology language and counseling language, but the idea is not to eliminate your shadow side, but rather to be integrated and to say that's the same person. I, these are not two Glens. This is the one Glen that is beloved and blessed by Jesus, uh, and and that's a kind of uh, that's a kind of wholeness that that we need that we crave. Oh, yeah, it certainly is. But it's so it's so hard. What I mean, what do you in your experience, I don't think just for someone in ministry, but for Christians in general, why why is it so hard to reveal our brokenness uh, to others? Are, are there certain sorts of perhaps counter theological ideas or, or certain sort of cultural pressures that you see in our church that you'd go as a pastor, uh, you know, you'd encourage people to say, hey, let, let's let's be cognizant of these sorts of pressures which make people feel as if they can't reveal their brokenness to others. That's really good. We, we, we are um, trying to, I mean, it's one of the things, you know, Brady has done such a good job of changing our church culture about is to say um, there's no shame in, in needing counseling. There's no shame in, in, in needing uh, medication for mental health stuff. I mean, all, all of the pieces of this, all of the aspects of this, that we need one another. We don't get through this uh, alone. And part, you know, maybe to complete the circle here, there's a kind of wholeness that is being mended, put back together. There's a kind of wholeness that is integration. But there's a kind of wholeness that really only comes when you're with others. We're only complete when we're with um, one another. I tell a story in the book of planting our congregation, New Life Downtown, right after having our, or right in the season of having our fourth child and my wife going through some postpartum uh, challenges and, and needing others to help us when we're supposed to be like these pioneer church planner type, you know, and, and, and just, but the power of that and how it actually shaped the culture of our congregation downtown to say, oh, well, I guess it's okay to ask for help. And maybe one of the best ways, I mean, Brady did this a few years ago. He went through some 
health stuff with and and he stood up in front of the church and said look i'm asking a couple of guys to help me you know to surround me and and i I think when we model that, when we say to people, I may be the leader, but I still need your help. I still need your support and your strength. It says to everyone, you know, what Paul basically said in Second Corinthians, you know, it's it's not our strength that, that wins the day. It's, it's God's grace, you know. I was thinking as I was reading about the connection between this affirmation of the 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 original blessedness of creation and and what might happen, and it seems like it happened in New Life Church, it seems like it's happened in your own life, where we can recover a healthy view of general revelation so that you'd be able to just say something is postpartum and it's not a demon, yeah, right? And that, that you'd actually be able to say all goodness is God's goodness, yeah. even whatever medication, yep. whatever sort of counseling, whether it's yep. Christian counseling or secular counseling, uh, you know, I think back to even the patristics, the early church fathers like Justin Martyr that that said that uh, um, he had this idea, this this construct that he called the seeds of the Logos. And he, he even pointed to Greek philosophy, and he said, boy, the Greeks, Christ was at work in the Greeks insofar as the philosophy they presented was in alignment with what is true, good, and beautiful. And I think about the, if we start with blessedness, even some of the implications that has for how we can be open about our brokenness and actually be able to get help for it in ways that doesn't uh, overly spiritualize it. I, um, I was talking to a friend of mine a few weeks ago who was sharing about, they were in a very charismatic context too, and they were really struggling after their child, uh, they look back and they they know now that his wife had postpartum depression, but in it they were they were kind of looking for these sort of spiritual causes, which seemed to only create greater shame to the point where they felt that they just had to move away. They had to move away from the church that they so enjoyed being in for all these other reasons, not in any anger, but just to get close to family because that's that's all they knew to do. And so I, I think about this blessedness, starting with blessedness, starting with a higher view of general revelation allows for us to be open of our brokenness and perhaps even get the proper treatment for it as well. It's, it's, it's so encouraging to hear churches like New Life and what you guys are doing seems to affirm that too. Well, there's a whole trend. I mean, there's a whole wave, and, and I've seen you know lots of churches. Obviously, you know, my friend Rich Belotus out in Queens, New Life Fellowship with Pete Scazzaro's um, material, you know, Pete founded the church there, emotionally healthy spirituality, and we're learning to talk about uh, even an integrated spirituality, a spirituality that works with um, our own physicality, limitations, emotions, all of that stuff, and that that's super, super healthy. You make a case uh, in this sort of final movement of your book that there can be a purpose to our brokenness, and that Perhaps our brokenness is like like the bread of Christ's body is broken to be shared with the yeah. world that 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 we're to be given. I couldn't help but as I was reading that to to think about. I had a conversation and it was actually the last episode with Dr. Clay Rutledge, who does this extensive work on the science and psychology of personal meaning. And he he was sharing with me that there was this there's this inextricable link between people making contributions to others and an increase in their own sense of meaning and purpose, and that one of the most common symptoms prevalent in people who experience suicidal tendencies is a sense they have nothing to contribute to the world. So 
you're you're prescribing something, and this is where this integration of the 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 the, the general revelation and the special revelation are intertwined. It's this uh, incarnational sacramental theology affirms all of us. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. But you know, to give ourselves for others is an absolutely vital movement, isn't it? I mean, why why is it? Why is it beyond? I mean, I cited some psychological reasons, perhaps, but what sort of theological case or biblical theology could we point to and go, no, guys, this has always been there. And Well, for one, I mean, there's there's several places to go with this. One is it is the Genesis one thing, you know, they let us make humans in our image and let them rule. So part of, part of being an image bearer is to be a person that reflects God's rule. Well, well that's another way to say that. It's a person who who represents God's love and wisdom and order and peace into the world. So any way that we carry that to others is, is in a sense, reclaiming our humanness. If to be human is to be made in the image of God, which means to represent God and extend God's wisdom into the world, then anytime we do that, gosh, we're becoming fully human. That That is that is becoming more, more most fully ourselves. But and there's another sense in this, and I, I talk in the book about uh, that the the seat of this is a love for Jesus Himself. You know that when Pe- when Jesus is restoring Peter's call, it, it, it is not about purpose anymore. The first time Jesus calls Peter, it, it is about purpose. Follow me, and I will make you a fisher of men. He's like, yes, I'm in. You know, and that works for a couple of years. But in the the deepest personal crisis that Peter's going through, where he goes back to his you know fishing and all this stuff, when Jesus wants to call him out of that even to the point of calling him into a, a, a martyrdom kind of death that, you know, is hinted at at the end of John's gospel. He, he really only asked Peter one question three times. Do you love me? And I think that's so important, maybe particularly for pastors and church leaders, that ultimately what carries us is not because we are committed to the cause or we love the local church or we love, you know, yes, yes, yes. But the thing beneath all of that has to be a love for Jesus himself. So, why do we give? Because the G, the Christ whom we love has told us to feed my, my sheep, has told us to feed my lambs. So it's our creational design. It's our redemption, redemptive purpose. And, and, and maybe at the heart of all of this, it's the nature of grace. This is how grace works. Uh, in, in, I think, chapter 10, I talk about grace as God's generosity, which begets generosity. It completes the circle. Um we tend to think of grace in a very Western sense as being transactional. You know, uh, God gave me his grace and or I come and you know confess my sin. God gives me grace and it's over. But the, the ancient way of thinking of gift giving is, is a cycle. It's, a, it's cyclical. It's circular. So the giver gives a gift to produce a relationship or reinforce a relationship. The recipient then gives something back, whether it's honor or praise or in the Old Testament, you give to the poor. This is why the Proverbs say, if you if you uh, give to the poor, it's like lending to the Lord, you know, which is a funny way of, well, what could I possibly lend to the Lord? Well, no, no, no. Think of it as God's given you stuff, and the way you quote-unquote return the generosity or complete the circle is by giving outward to others. I, I, I find that to be so interesting because uh, it, it you said it's cyclical, and I think about your own situation uh, that you shared about being kind of in in a deep state of despair and coming to the point of seeing, feeling your brokenness. But what you needed was someone to give to you in order to see your blessedness and to see that you're blessed even in your brokenness. 
and uh, you know, in some some ways, these sorts of theological ideas, if they're they're just you know cognitive affirmations, they they seem they seem to have little transformative impact compared to when they're embodied in the life of someone and you experience someone who has given of themselves for you. And that's really ultimately what you feel a call to in vocational ministry is to to give yourself for others. Um, what sorts of, uh, maybe as we wrap up here, what sorts of pastoral encouragements would you give people I get you get people listening to this that come from all over the map. There's people that uh, have connected with my podcast that are in their there's sort of maybe a deconstructing phase. They've grown up in the church and you know they're kind of reprocessing some of the things they've heard. And I, we also get a, a decent amount of people that are just uh, they they just sort of enjoy philosophy and theology and they're wrestling with ideas and they might be you know, listening to Jordan Peterson's sorts of talks and what sort of pastoral encouragement would you would you give to people who are perhaps afraid to take any sort of step in these movements? Um, is there a place where you go and say, hey, you, begin here. Maybe you can you can start with this. Here's a first step. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, what a great question. I mean, I, 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 think, I put you on the spot there. That wasn't in the pre-interview list of questions. <laughs> I think a first step it w- would be to say that Jesus wants to take your life into his hands. And, well, I don't have everything all figured out. It's okay. Uh, well, I'm not sure what I think about, you know, Jesus and other, you know, it, it's okay. I, I haven't worked out this or that, right? You know, Jesus wants to take your life into his hands and... That there is this, you know, I end the book by talking about what in Anglican um, liturgy is called the comfortable words. Uh, The comfortable words um, are a set of four New Testament passages that essentially Thomas Cranmer, the English reformer, put together right before the moment where you come to the Lord's table. And there were some of these that existed in Lutheran, uh, uh, you know, Luther's liturgy, but Cranmer really put these particular four verses together. And what he wanted was, he wanted a moment um, where people could really believe that God wanted them, (laughs) that God loved them, that their life was meaningful. And so the very first scripture Cranmer chose to use as the first of the quote-unquote comfortable words is where Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And that's the invitation here. It's not make something of your life. It doesn't start by saying, go ahead and give yourself, spend yourself for the world. It, 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 it doesn't start with that. It doesn't even start with confess your brokenness and open up to others. It, it starts with Jesus saying, come to me, come to me, all you who are weary, and uh, I will take your life into my hands and I will make you blessed and broken and given. Wow, that's beautiful. Thank you, Glenn. Um, I appreciate you taking the time for the conversation. Uh, if there were... People that are listening that that wanna that do want to pick up this book, what are some ways that they can find it? How can they get a hold of it? Well, wherever people like to buy books, uh, it, it is on Amazon. It's on Barnes and Noble's website. You can pre-order it now. It releases August sixth, which is earlier than they thought they were going to do. Late August, they moved it up to August sixth, which is great. There'll be an audio book available as well. I'm going to go record that uh, later uh, or in July, and uh, and so that that's available too. And and um, 
Yeah, and I'll I'll post as time comes. I'll post some things on my own website where I'm going to make some videos that are a minute or two minute videos that introduce each chapter. So if you want to, you know, follow along that way, I'm going to post some discussion questions. There'll be additional things um, along the way. But my hope is that the book itself becomes an invitation into a, a new way of seeing uh, the Lord and your own life and your journey with Him. Oh, that's awesome. I'll put in the uh, description to this podcast, everyone, uh, ways that you can get a hold of Glenn's book and maybe connect with him. Um, He's a good follow on Twitter. He's not trying to build a brand or anything like that, but I think the things that he has to offer are uh, have been immensely helpful to me over the years, and I think they can be helpful to you. So thank you again, Glenn. Thank you, Paul. Well, guys, I I feel so fortunate to be able to have conversations with people like Glenn and some of the others I've been able to talk to over the last few months. And I am hopeful that you guys feel the same way. I hope that the conversations we've been having have been helpful to you as you process your own journey with God and, and, and wrestle with the big questions and deep ideas that give our life meaning and purpose. And so uh, if if that is the case, I, I want to invite you to become a supporter on Patreon. That's one of the ways that you can support the work that is happening here with Deep Talks, Exploring Theology and Meaning Making, both the audio podcast and the YouTube videos that I am doing as well. That's one way to support it. Um, For even as little as $2 a month, you can become first tier supporters. And that may seem like a little bit, you might not even notice it coming out each month, but uh, you multiply that over a few hundred or even ideally a few thousand people, and that would be that'd be quite a bit of helpful support to this uh, to this work that I see as valuable, and I'm I'm giving my uh, giving a, a good deal of my time to to helping hopefully helping others out. So thank you for those of you that have been supporting. And there's other ways you can support too, uh, even just by reviewing or making sure you subscribe on Apple Music, uh, Apple Music, Apple Podcasts, or Podbean, or google podcasts wherever um, the amount of subscriptions helps because it helps other people discover it as well and you could also subscribe on youtube where there again is some exclusive video content things that fit that video format that don't necessarily fit the audio only format so check all those things out make sure i'd love hearing from you guys if you have questions concerns comments you want to just dialogue about these ideas that's why I'm doing it. So you can find me on Twitter at Paul Ann Leitner. All right. Well, till next time.